0: friends welcome to God on Tap and we today are going to do the intro to Jude the book of Jude which is that tiny little letter it's about 25 verses right before the book of Revelation and I'm not gonna lie I've been dragging my feet on doing this one uh I've had a friend Rebecca Carroll who has who has probed me many many times and um like, lovingly and Christianly bugged me to do this. And the reason why I haven't is because, truth be told, it's a little bit of an intimidating book because Jude is one of those authors who packs a lot of punch in a very short amount of verses, and he assumes his reader has knowledge of not only the Old Testament, but some texts that aren't even from the Old Testament. And so we're going to, we'll jump into all that today. So all that to say, this is me moving ever so slowly into some uncharted territory for me, a book that I would have probably put on the back shelf, but I'm up for the challenge. So let's jump right in. Not only that, my church is literally called St. Jude Oak Cliff. We're literally named after this author. And so uh, it's a beautiful book. It's a very beautiful book. It is a profound necessary, good book. And I uh, I will do my best to unpack some of the more kind of weird parts of it. It uses some weird apocalyptic language, but um, we'll jump right in. And so for this intro, I'm just going to go like we've done before. The intro episodes are always a little bit wonky um, because we're not really walking through so much scripture. I am going to read the first two verses and we'll talk about that, but we're going to really follow the who, what, when, where, and why. And again, I think doing an intro to any book of study is so critical because it orients you to what you should be looking for, what kind of themes should come up. And so that's what we're going to do today is we're going to learn a little bit about the man and who he's writing to and what we're going to get out of it. And so, but I do want to read the first two verses so that will orient us as to what's going on. And so here is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, What a beautiful intro. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just do this who, what, when, where, why, and go through it. And then a lot of this will overlap, and then I'll get excited, and I'll tell you all these things, and we'll try to keep this thing below 20 minutes. But there is a lot of background info to look at. So first things first, though, we're going to look at the who. And part of why I, this book is so unbelievably beautiful is because of the who. And so Jude, St. Jude, Santo Judas, Judah, the Lion of Judah. Nope, that's Jesus, wrong person. But Jude, Jude is a half-brother of Jesus, okay? And so we know this from the scriptures such as Matthew 13, 55. They list all the brothers of Jesus, um, Jacob, Joseph, Simon, and Judah. Judah and Jude are the same names. That's the same person. We see it also in Mark 6, 3. There's parallel there. So, so Jude is one of the. So, remind us of the story of Jesus. So, Jesus is born to a virgin. Uh, Mary is his mother. She is betrothed, which means she is engaged to Joseph. Engagement in the ancient world was much more serious than ancient today. I mean, excuse me, than engagement today. And so, what it meant was it was basically a legal status that you were already married. Now, you hadn't consummated the marriage yet, which is my uh, theological term for you know what i'm saying they hadn't consummated it yet but they were legally wed so they are they are they are engaged to each other they are legally she is legally his angel visits mary mary gets pregnant out of a virgin birth which is crazy and biologically pro, you know problematic so joseph is an honorable man he's like listen i'm just gonna i'm gonna you know sort of put you I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quietly divorce you. I'm a good guy. This really stinks. And then, of course, the angel visits Joseph and says, hey, your wife is carrying God, so you may want to stick with it. So fast forward after, so Joseph does not lay with Mary. She remains a virgin all the way through, and that's what, you know, God prescribes that. We have a virgin miraculously giving birth to Jesus. After Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph raise Jesus, but then they also have these children these other kids in their family. So that's why they're called the half-brothers, because again, Jesus shares his DNA with his mother and with God, if he has DNA. I realize I'm just even assuming some things here, but that's why they're called the half-brothers of Jesus or brothers of Jesus, because presumably they would be the children of Mary and Joseph, and they're listed. So so why does that matter? Well, a couple of things. One, if you remember through the gospel writing, what's so crazy about Jesus's life is his siblings do not believe that he's, in fact, the Messiah. You see these stories, like, where he goes to Nazareth, and he goes to his hometown, and he does these miraculous things, and people are like, and you see his brothers come to the house, and they're like, bro, bro, get home. You need to come home. And you even see this, like, crazy story, and they're like, Jesus is doing his business, and somebody comes to him, and he's like, your mother and your brothers are here. And he's like, who are my mother and my brothers? My mother and my brothers are those who would do the will of God, which is a total slap to the face. But you think about that. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He lived with God. He grew up with God. He saw God go through puberty. He saw God stub his toe. He saw God eat his breakfast. He saw this, and he did not believe, which is wild. And then, in Acts 1.14, we learn that after the resurrection, after Jesus Christ dies on the cross, rises again, that his brothers and his family, they all come to a saving faith, um, or at least it's presumed in the text, that they, they begin to worship Jesus as the risen Lord. They see now that they grew up with God, which, I mean, first of all, y'all, what the what? Can you imagine? Like, I can tell you right now I didn't grow up with God because I know my siblings and <laughs> they ain't it, fam. But can you, Im- I, I just can't even imagine. You, like, grow up with a brother who has all wisdom and goodness embodied in him, and yet you still don't believe, which tells you why faith is such a gift. It tells you why Jesus was so radical um, in who he was as a person. So Jude does not believe. And then after the resurrection, we see that the brothers of Jesus are there worshiping him. Um, They're a part of the early church. We see his brother James is one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And so this is the Jude that we have, which is so beautiful. In the verses I just read to you, Jude is the brother of Jesus the brother of Jesus. And he does not claim that as his identity. Instead, he says he is the servant of Jesus and the brother of James, which tells you the kind of humility and life transformation that Jude must have gone through to go from the guy who at one point was telling Jesus, Bro, you need to come on home and shut it down, to now he's the guy that's like, Hey, I'm his servant and and later you're going to see that him say that there's only one master and lord which is Jesus Christ which is this unbelievable humility cuz i'll be i'm going to keep it real if i grew up with god like if god were my brother that would probably slip out from time to time like that'd be good party talk if y'all know Brian Regan the comedian he talks about the me monster and like the you know if you're at a party and people just talking about themselves and always talking about how great they are and he's like me 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 and he talks about how some people have the trump card and he's like use Buzz Aldrin for example he's like well really I walked on the moon like I would totally be like people would be like yeah and one time I competed in the Daytona 500 at one time I went to the Olympics or one time I caught a huge fish or one time I blah 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 and I'd be like really Well, my brother's God, so... Yeah, so anyways, that tells you how humble Jude is. So that's our who. This is the brother of Jesus who is incredibly humble, and he does not even use his status as Jesus' brother for his own clout, but instead calls himself the brother of James and the servant of Jesus Christ. The other part of the who is he's writing to a group of people, and this is part of why this book is intimidating for me, is because whoever he's writing to... He is assuming that they have a lot of knowledge of Jewish literature. Okay, so Jude is writing this letter. It is, it isn't, it is a letter, and we're gonna talk about that in the what. Actually, I'll just do that now. So the what is this, we call it an epistolary sermon. Epistolary is just a fancy word for epistle, and epistle is a fancy word for letter. So you've probably heard in the New Testament there's all these epistles. Epistle is just a a really fancy word for letter. And the New Testament is full of them because so many times the leaders of the early church would write their thoughts and they would send it out. And so this category, epistolary sermon, it's kind of a little bit of a made-up category. But the idea is, is this is a letter that had Jude been able to be in person with the people he's writing, chances are this is a sermon that he would deliver. Like this would, this is meant to be sort of a, a teaching that altogether people, as it's read out loud, it is designed like a sermon but it's written as a letter. And so you think about that, a sermon letter, they come together, epistolary sermon, that's the what here. And so Jude, whoever he's writing it to, to go back to our who, he assumes they understand the Old Testament because he is going to reference multiple moments throughout the Old Testament story as an example of how God has used judgment in history. So he assumes that his audience knows that. Because he doesn't say, hey, remember back in this book? Instead, he does what a lot of the New Testament writers do when they have an audience. He says, and he just just references it. He doesn't give a ton of, he just says, you know, hey, God did this thing one time. And you're like, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to know that that's in Genesis. I'm supposed to know that that's in Numbers or wherever. The other thing that he does is he references Jewish literature that we today, if you are from the um, Protestant side of religious faith, we would not consider these books to be scripture. And what they are is the Testament of Moses. He references this, and this is where there's kind of that, um, there's some interesting storytelling that that Jude uses as a reference point so he assumes his audience knows the testament of Moses and he assumes they know the book first Enoch and we're going to get into these details as we unpack this book a little bit more but he so Jude whoever he's writing to he assumes not only do they know their old testament but that they would be familiar with this other Jewish literature okay and so the the Testament of Moses was like a first century document that tells these stories that today we would not call scripture and we will talk about whether or not Jude actually thought they were scripture or whether or not he just thought they were good teaching examples Um, and then the book of first Enoch it's a longer book that's been compiled anywhere from 200 BC to 300 AD is like this longer patch of work but Again, Jude just writes as if he knows that's what you're talking about. So that's how we know he most likely he's writing to a Jewish audience. So that's our who. The half-brother Jesus writing to an audience that would have understood Jewish literature. The what, it's an epistolary sermon. It's meant to uh, go out and to be read to a group of people. And it is, uh, the what is also, it is a, whoo, it is a powerful book, y'all. When we get into this, you're going to be like, good night, Jude. What did I mean, he it's like if you were watching a boxing match, Jude, if it's Jude versus a false teacher is what we're going to see is he's got the false teacher up against the corner and he is just slugging. He is slugging them and he is not pulling his punches. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this book. And so the first two verses that I read to you is really the greeting. It's a very common greeting in the ancient world. That's how letters start. This is like the author to so-and-so grace and peace and all that stuff. Um, and then you move from the greeting into the purpose of the letter, which we're going to read. And you know, next, next time we do this. And then, uh, actually, I'm going to read it to you today. And then he's going to talk about God's judgment against the wicked in verses 5 through 19. So verses 1 through 2, the greeting. Verses 3 through 4, the purpose of the letter. 5 through 19 is God's judgment against the wicked. And this is where he's like, get, gah, 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 and he just keeps punching them. And then verses 22 23, which is the main reason why he writes, is he's he, he spends the majority of his letter talking about the wicked, but he does so because he wants the faithful to persevere in their faith. He's ultimately writing from a pastoral position where he's saying, listen, this is why you shouldn't listen to the wicked. This is why you should absolutely listen um, to the Lord and to those who have who have given you the truth. And then verses 24 through 25 end with a doxology. And doxology is one of our fancy terms that's really just a term for a hymn, um, a hymn of praise, words of praise. And so this, these actually, these last two verses have been turned into a song. In my church every Sunday ends with this doxology. Every Sunday we end it with, uh, now to him who is able, and, and we sing it out. And it's really beautiful. So that's the, the what is this, this thing. When, the when is kind of debated. We don't have an exact time. But essentially what has happened in the history of church, Jesus has come. He's risen from the dead. His brothers are now converted. Churches have been established. They have been established long enough that false teachers have come in. So like 1 John, like um, the letters from 2 Peter and other places, there is there have been teachers now who have infiltrated these early churches who are pro- who are proclaiming false things. And so now the leaders of the church, people like James and Jude and Peter and Paul and John, are writing letters to correct some of this false teaching. So maybe it was written in the 50s. A lot of commentators think that 50 AD could be a little bit later. Either way. Um, it, it's really, the when is in response to false teachers coming in. The where, again, it's written to a group of people with a Jewish background. Uh, I don't, we don't know an exact where, but we can, we can assume that. Uh, and then the why. And so I'm going to read to you verses 3 through 4. Three through four. Wow, that was, came out awkward. I'm going to ver- uh, read to you those verses because this is the why. He gives us very uh, clear purpose statement here. So he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So right away, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, who doesn't even claim it, he's saying, I'm a servant of Jesus, I'm the brother of James, grace and mercy, peace, all that multiplied to you. And now I'm telling you, hey, I was going to write about this, but now I got to write about that because this was going to be what I was going to talk about, but now we got to deal with that because these wicked, wicked people have come in here. And he says these people, these ungodly people, they have perverted the grace of God, which is an abounding grace. It's an abounding grace. I love you, I love you, I love you, and they have taken that grace and they've perverted it into a morally bankrupt way of living. They've taken the grace of God and said, therefore, we can do a little of this, a little of that, stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And he's telling them, listen, contend for the faith, which is, in other words, fight for the faith. Like, put activity and energy toward the faith that you receive because there's only one Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And if you pervert the grace of God in allowing you to do these like immoral things, then your activity is in essence denying that you believe there is one master and one Lord. That if you are a slave to Jesus, then you will be obedient to Jesus. And if you're perverting grace and doing wickedness, then you are not a slave, which means you don't actually think he's your master and Lord, which is what he's getting at. And that's the the why of our letter. And so these wicked people have come in. They're doing really rebellious, nasty things. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, is going to come in and he's going to drop the hammer. And it's going to be, uh, well, if you are walking with Jesus, it will be a beautiful example of how leaders contend for us. And frankly, if you're rebelling, then it is a letter meant to uh, get your attention and to bring about change. And so that's, that's what we need to do as we go through this book. So when we're going to go through it, I want you to look for a couple of things. I want you to look for, one, his assumption that they know the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll explain the Old Testament passages. Two, his use of these other Jewish literature pieces. Three, his desire, though, is to protect Christians and to bring about repentance. And I think that's really beautiful. Like there's a whole lot of punching, but the punching is, is a – responsive goodness and a response to see repentance and contending for the faith and all that goodness and so okay so what is our our big so that we can take away from our intro material today well i think we live in a world where um words like sin and trespass and uh, iniquity and i'm trying to think of other like the bible project did like their bad word series and those are the three words that they focus on and these are all like theological terms that describe the human condition when we're rebelling from God. And we use terms like sin and, and all of that. And what's interesting is those feel like really ancient words and they feel like very like religious words. Okay. And I, I know like, cause I evangelize to people in a postmodern world, like sin is a word that doesn't seem to have a meaning based in Christian literature anymore. It feels like it's just a word that almost feels meaningless to a culture that now has a different way of measuring what is good and right behavior. So let me give you an example of what I mean. We now, I think, define morality this way. All behavior is permissible if, if it brings about your good, it is therapeutic for you in some way, and does not harm those around you. So for example, what is the harm of pornography okay people will make the argument listen you're not hurting anyone you're just watching content they're all adults consenting here which by the way pornography industry is a lot of violence against women it is a lot of child um it's rape it is disgusting there are victims in it but but let me so let me just tell you now i do not think that those are all consenting adults and porn is no big deal but i'm using this as an example because this is what you'll hear it is therapeutic for the person participating in it, and it is not harming anyone else. Therefore, how could you, how could it be morally wrong, right? Or um, let me give you another example where, and I'm going to use all sexual examples because I think this is where it comes out the most. What does it matter if two consenting people choose to participate in sexual activity together? How is that anyone else's business, and how could that possibly be considered wrong when it brings about endorphins and feel-good and, and blah, blah, blah? Okay, well, one, um, that's an incredibly naive view of human sexuality, so I'll just be honest with you in that. I think any sex outside the context of marriage has the potential and reality of doing violence against the other person. But two, if you are a Christian, and you call on the name of the Lord, and you believe that Jesus Christ is your one Lord and Master— he has something to say about all of humanity's behavior, activity, and participation. And the reality is, is so many times I think this has infiltrated the church, is that we don't like to call sin, sin. That we like to like, cut corners on certain things like greed, or maybe racism, or pride, or fill in the blank. And books like James, and Jude, and 1 John, they just don't give us a pass. And I think it's also why we kind of ignore them. Like we prefer the teachings of Paul where he talks about where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But we don't keep reading when he says, so therefore should we go on sinning? And he's like, by no means. Like, are you kidding me? And so James is this book that I think sometimes gets ignored because he's like, hey, discipleship is such that if you say you love God, but then you ignore your neighbor, then I'm not sure you love God. And we don't really like that. In our modern sensibilities. Like, we don't really understand that there is a call on our life to walk in obedience. And so, our so what for us today is that sin really does matter. It really does. So much so that when false teachers come into the church, in the early church, and they are teaching things like, hey, since grace abounds, therefore, if it feels good and it's not hurting someone, enjoy, which, by the way, it, all, all that stuff ultimately hurts people. And I can trace that out for us at another time. Like there's a reason why God has certain boundaries on our pleasures. I think God is the God of pleasure. He gives us pleasure, but there's boundaries for our pleasure because when we step over those lines, they do harm and hurt others. But that's a digression. My point is if we live in the world, the ancient world, where they come along and say, if, it's, if God is the God of grace, then live, eat, be joyful, do whatever you want, say whatever you want, do whoever you want, and grace will abound, it is so serious that the brother of Jesus is like, hey, I was going to write about this, but now I need to address that. And he's going to do so in, ter- in terms that are so strong and so robust that it leaves us nowhere, no wiggle room at the end of this book to say that sin is not a big deal. And he does it because he wants us to continue to walk in the faith that his brother, his brother paid the sacrifice for and then rose again and created a new world order for us. I believe that Jude is writing for a place of deep love and care and maturity and maturity because at one point he didn't believe and now he does and at one point he doubted his brother and now he believes and I believe that he, we are getting the letter of a mature Christian man who is appealing to us to consider his very brother as he does as the master and Lord of our life. And so that's what we're going to see in this letter. I'm excited to jump into it. Uh, I think it'll be a great learning excursion for myself, and hopefully it'll be edifying and helpful to you all too. So we will pick up tomorrow, we will jump into this short little letter of Jude and pick up talking about the Old Testament. Love it. So if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, Jude's brother, Jesus Christ, and the rest of the Trinity are crazy about you. Peace.